All right, the final section here in our study of the book of Malachi. We are in chapter 3, verse 13. We have come to the sixth of seven oracles. Um, so in this sixth oracle, we're going to see God's, uh, God promises distinction. So in the midst of all of this, the Lord knows who His people are and who they are not, and He is going to be, to be highlighting that here with some words of, of promise. Chapter 3, verse 13, God's claim. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. The word hard there means harsh or arrogant. God accuses Israel here of speaking arrogant, accusing words of criticism against him. Now, without reading the next verse or the rest of it, what do you think Israel says? <laughs> what should they say? Oh, Lord, please forgive us. Please show me the error of my way. But no, 3.13, Israel's question, but you say, how have we spoken against you? So again, rather than humbly listening, they are arrogantly scoffing. Well, God will tell them, verse 14, here's his response. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of uh, walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So what they're doing here is they're, they're looking at their, their pocketbooks and they're looking at their portfolios and they don't see the blessing that they'd like, so they charge God with being a, a useless God to serve. It's vain, it's, it's empty, it's worthless, it's, it's, it's meaningless to serve God. It's unprofitable to obey His, His word and His ways. What's in it for me, Lord, because I sure don't see anything, is kind of their posture. He says, when you speak like that, you speak hard words, harsh, arrogant words. Here in 315, they, they echo the charge of 217, and they accuse God of wrongly rewarding the, the wicked. He says, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is Israel's view about what was happening in, in the nation. The wicked keep doing evil, but they don't suffer. This isn't fair because it sure seems to be hard on us. Well, in verse 16, we see a humble remnant respond to the prophet's message with humility rather than hardness of heart. This is like, when I, I remember when I came to this, it's like this fresh wind. You're like, oh, somebody opened the window and some sense blew in. Just some grace. There's some people who get it. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another together. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The word for speak there in verse 16 is the same in verse 13. There's a contrast here. Instead of complaining, they counsel together about how to trust and to honor God, which I don't know about for you, but in a book that's really heavy, I mean, this book, there's, there's nothing like weak sauce about this book. This book, he, the Lord brings the heat. But for a verse like this, it's like the Lord just pauses it and records this and leaves it in here for us to say, I see you. Those of you whose hearts are tender, who don't want to be struggling with these things, who find yourself overcome by temptation, who find yourselves given to distrust, who do find yourselves really wrestling with issues of justice and what's happening in the world, who have sinned and know it. For those of you, I see you. 
And he would want us to follow the same sort of pattern here, to take counsel together. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So just observe here that the remnant, this is the faithful remnant, are encouraging each other. They know one another. They meet together. They're going to be praying together. They're going to be fearing the Lord together. And you see a twofold response to God. They feared the Lord, they revered Him, and they esteemed Him. They respected Him. They held Him in high regard, which is the opposite of, of most, right? I mean, so far, most of the people, they've been despising His name and belittling Him. Here, they fear and revere Him. Which, by the way, again, to be in this group is going to take courage. So in the same way, it took courage for some priests to stand up and shut the door and say, we're not having this mess in here. To be a group who's huddled up in the face of everybody else who it feels like is around you doesn't care about holiness or God's name, to be in that kind of position takes courage to keep trusting the Lord and keep on going, which is why I think the highlight of them doing it together as a community is so important. To, to, to huddle up with people who have the same heart for God in a way that provokes trust and faith. So their faithfulness here is not missed. It's not overlooked. God paid attention to them. He responded to them. He heard their response to him. And he responded by recording in the book of remembrance. Now notice here, it is... Um, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. It was written before the Lord. So whether this means an angel is writing it down as the Lord tells him to do it or he's writing it down in front of him, we don't know. But the point is, God sees it and he takes note of it. His eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. The Lord is watching. He knows. He sees. And here, even in the midst of all the madness even in the midst of all the noise, he sees the hearts of those who fear him and revere him, who pray, who are trying to obey him or are grieved when they do not. And he takes note. I think it's interesting here to, to note that despite the nation's rebellion, God remains faithful to the remnant. This is intended to inspire our faith to keep trusting no matter what. Well, verse 17 they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The Lord says, they shall be mine. God has his eye here on a future day that he's relaying through the prophet to the people in which he will claim and honor those who have claimed and honored him. He's saying, I see it. I haven't missed it. A day is coming when I'm going to honor you in the way that you've honored me. Trust me. I see it. Which again, you can see this is, all of this is by faith. You're trusting him. Where when we get to glory, it'll seem like it went so fast. But when you're in the midst of trying to do it, it feels so long and tough. But this is why an eternal perspective guards your faith. It helps you to keep things in, in proper view. He says, they shall be mine. In the day, again, he's speaking here of the day of the Lord. 
The day when the wicked will face the terror of his judgment, but the righteous remnant will be spared and treated as his own treasure. This is, we saw the day of the Lord in Zephaniah in our study there, that there's a day of, of both severe wrath and of severe mercy for both. And here is that, that day's in view. Again, my treasured possession is what he calls them. This is a language would be used about the private property of a king. So the king owns everything, right? But, but he has his own stuff. Well, these people are his own stuff. These are his people who he loves. They're his treasured possession. He holds them near and dear to his heart. They're a special, unique treasure, meaningful. So on that day when the Lord makes everything right, when he sets things clear as they truly are, there will be no confusion about who the Lord blesses and who he doesn't. Because right now they look out on the nation and there's confusion about why did the evil seem to prosper. And he's like, trust me, I'm working. And there's a day when everything's going to be made very plain. It'll be made very plain. Which again, whatever suffering you're enduring right now, whatever tempts you to not trust God, whatever ways you are struggling, all the ways that that's required of you right now in these days of faith, the Lord gives words like this to point us, to assure us that it'll be worth it on the day of sight. And we'll see. I'm just, I can't, I always think about that day. What would that be like, like for us? Like, I, just, I just hope that the Lord will be like, all right, uh, Bible time crew from November 14th, everybody hustle in for a minute. Hey, do you remember what we talked about? The Lord did it. Everybody, like, yay. And then, you know, Shane will be like, can we sing about it? And I'm like, yay. And all the angels will be like, let's do it. And it'll be great. And that's, I mean, like, like I think that's what glory will be about. There'll be about so much, you know, Karen, remember the time you trusted the Lord when you wanted to quit? Well, you didn't. And here we are. Praise God. It was worth it. Everybody's like, it was worth it. Yay, let's sing again. And like, like the whole, like, there's so much of that. You're never going to get bored in glory. Like recounting time and time again how the Lord, you saw that, Lord? You remember the Matthew 25 scene where he's dividing out the sheep and the goats and the Lord's like, hey, you did this for me, you did this for me, you did this for me. And he's like, when did we do that, Lord? And he's like, remember this? The Lord saw it. He remembers it all. And he says, there's a day coming when it'll be paid in full. Trust me. Chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming, the day that is coming shall, be, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. God assures his people the day is coming in which evil will be done away with once and for all, and there will be no escape for them. So do not align with them. But for you who fear my name, verse 2, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. There is hope here laid out before God's people. For those of you who fear my name, who don't scoff at it, who don't blaspheme it, who don't take it in vain, there's a day coming when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wing. It's like there's light that is coming. It's, it's like it pictures it like the sun coming and shining and giving light for everything to be seen for how it truly is, how much that gives life, Right? 
He says it's going to be like that. There's healing that is coming. So rather than expecting a consuming fire of judgment, you can expect a hopeful day marked by the rising and the shining of the sun. He says you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. <laughs> it's just like he, he, he's like some, you know, uh, some, some TikTok video of this newborn little thing jumping up and hopping around. Everybody's like, oh, that's cute. He's like, well, that's the picture of what you're going to be like. You're like, I'm finally free. Praise the Lord. No more sin. Can you imagine that? Like when we are there with the Lord and there is no more sin and evil is done away with, no more sin in us or around us, and you are set free, you're free is the picture here. You're alive. The Lord says that day is coming. Don't lose heart. This picture of God being a son is echoed, or God yeah, rewarding like a son with his very presence here is, is, a, is a picture is drawn upon throughout Scripture. One particular one, Psalm 84:11. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is upright. Here, this same message is given. You who fear my name, I see you. And what awaits you is a day of joy, of light, and of life. So do not lose heart, because re- healing and restoration is coming. That verse 3 there, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet uh, on the day when I act, uh, says the Lord of hosts. One of the pictures that's painted throughout the Scriptures is that God's people will join Jesus in the conquering of evil. This is particularly clear in the the book of of Revelation, but um, one of the the texts that I think I, I mentioned uh, last night, and this is from Romans 16, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The church triumphs with Jesus. That when Jesus comes back and does away with all of the evildoers, we are with him and join him in that, in a way that he is conquering and we conquer with him. For some of us, that sort of image is difficult for us to understand. Again, I think that's because most of us have not experienced the sort of persecution that most Christians have throughout history. I mean, just imagine uh, if you were here a couple days ago or whenever I guess it was the, the last Sunday sermon out of Revelation where I talked about the, the, the Syrian refugee from, from Turkey who ISIS had taken his house. Just imagine you're so defenseless. The Lord says, on that day, come with me. For those who have not repented, we will take, we will trod them down in judgment. And God will make all things right. That is the, the sixth oracle, that God promises distinction. He says, I see you. I write down your name in a book. I remember it all. So keep trusting me. Seventh and final oracle, and then we'll take questions on whatever you have left from the, the book. God's remnant is here delivered. So in 4.4 through 4.6, he is going to here, once again, point them toward this great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming. It's going to be through John the Baptist is ushering it in, and he's going to call them to remember the law and the prophets. 4.4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, 
the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here in verse 4, God calls the nation to remember the law of Moses, his covenant that he made with Israel that's summarized in Exodus through Deuteronomy. It's the basis of God's dealing with them. So as they await the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made, God expects them to remain faithful to his covenant commands. Notice there that Moses is called my servant. The reason is because he was faithful. doesn't mean he was perfect, but he was faithful. He was marked by faith and faithfulness in his, his life. Also mentioning here Horeb, that is uh, at Sinai, it recalls the images for them of, of God's fierce and fiery presence. It's intended to humble them and to spur them on in, in obedience. So he's taking them, as it were, back to Mount Sinai and saying, remember the law that came down. Remember the God who brought it down. Remember Moses, the servant. Keep your eye on him and let that provoke you to obedience. Remember the days when you first heard the, the, the word and you said, yes, this we will obey. Go back there in your hearts and live from it. Verse 5, the Lord promises again a forerunner who will precede the day of the Lord. And again, what is this day of the Lord? All days of the Lord is this unique intervention. It's a day where it's going to be great and awesome. Highlighting here the magnitude of, of God's working in this moment, which uh, if you haven't been here for the series in Revelation, I encourage you to, to go back and to study that or to read the book and to see the way that the people respond on the day of the Lord. Those who are His, they rejoice. It's a great and awesome day. For those who are opposed to Him, they hide under rocks and say, please hide us from Him. On that day, the Lord will be seen glorious as He is. And again, He says, to help them be ready, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet. A voice will come and tell you to flee. Well, how did God fulfill this? This is, of course, the same thing that we saw just a moment ago earlier. How did he fulfill it? Well, he sent it. Uh, he sent someone in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Matthew eleven seven, 7. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's taking them back to, remember when y'all went out in the wilderness to see John the Baptist? What were you expecting? To see a reed shaken by the wind, meaning you just out for, for somebody who's, who's trendy and is going with the current message of the day? Uh, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, meaning you're looking for somebody, a little puppet of the king? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting back from Malachi chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says this prophecy 
yeah, this prophecy in Malachi about Elijah who is to come is fulfilled not in some sort of reincarnation of Elijah, but rather one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah who fulfills that same role that Elijah did of calling the nation to repent of dead, wicked religion and to come unto the Lord. That's exactly what John the Baptist did. So John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Elijah promise. Jesus interprets it for us here. He was the forerunner, calling people to repent and to run to Jesus for forgiveness. Uh, it's interesting, John the Baptist didn't even know he was Elijah. Uh, they asked him, are you, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. I was telling Kelly, it's like Jesus is like, he is, he just doesn't know it. Um, so it's amazing how sometimes, even when you're, you're being used to the Lord, you don't recognize how he's using you. It seems to be the case for John. John didn't realize it. Uh, he even had questions on the, right before he was killed. He's like, are you the one or should we, should we send for it? Should we expect another? Because he is the forerunner for the king and he's about to get his head put on a platter. He says, this doesn't seem, this doesn't seem like the kingdom we were expecting. And, and he sends back word to him. He says, hey, the blind, the blind see, the lame walk. Trust me. And basically what Jesus is telling everybody is the kingdom's coming, but it's not coming like you would expect it to come. It's going to come first to a cross. John's going to be the first one to lose his head about it, but he's not going to be the last. And actually, it's going to be that way when the, the blood of many martyrs will be shed until, until the last one, and then the Lord will come for his people. Well, in verse 6, the ministry of Elijah will be one of calling repentance, which leads to reconciliation. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What does that mean? Well, it's not mentioned elsewhere in Malachi, and there's nowhere specifically mentioned in the law that seems to clearly fulfill this, but he's likely pointing to two things. First of all, the most basic of relationships uh, that ought to be marked by love, which fulfills the law. So this, this relationship between father and son should be, uh, for, between parents and children, should be marked by the sort of love that embodies the law. But also, and I think maybe even more so, is there's a generational emphasis in the scriptures about the way that parents are to teach their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 instructs parents to teach their children about the ways of the Lord, um, which was often neglected in Israel's day. I mean, think about the, the judges. You've got an entire generation who rose up and didn't know anything about the word, and they did what is right in their own, their own eyes. Well, this is what was probably happening here. You've got all these people who are probably not discipling their children. And Elijah, when he comes on the scene, John the Baptist, is going to call people to go back to the basics, come back to the law. Let's, let's repentance begin in your house and then come from, from there. This is why even the, in the book of Acts, um, you see entire households turning to the Lord. You have hearts reunited um, in the Lord because of his grace. Well, he concludes here with this promise uh, of warning of what happens when the fore, forerunner is ignored. He says, I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God calls the nation to remember Moses and await for Elijah, to set their heart and their mind on the law and the prophets, of whom, of course, Jesus came to fulfill. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus comes to do everything that the law um, required so that 
when he died, he could take the curse for all of our law-breaking. But for those who will not receive him, this one who was crucified and raised on their behalf, the final word of this book is what they should anticipate. The final word here of the Old Testament is the word harem in Hebrew. It can be translated destruction, as the ESV does, or if you have an NIV or NASB, it's likely translated curse. For uh, yeah, homiletical reasons, I'm going to go with the curse here. <laughs> the beginning of the Old Testament began with blessing extended, blessing rejected, and a curse given. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They sinned against God, Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, and a curse was put upon them. The effects of that curse have been felt ever since. But in the midst of that, God also made a promise of one who would come who would crush a serpent's head, one who would do away with unrighteousness. And the Old Testament is filled with promises and pictures and prophecies about this one who is to come. The Old Testament ends with anticipation of the forerunner who is promising that or yeah, with the promise of a forerunner who's going to come and make a way for this one who comes to bring blessing. But if you will not receive him, you can bet that the curse that began in the beginning of the Old Testament, that the last word of the Old Testament is about, will carry on and rest on you, and judgment will come. But Jesus came to be a curse so that we could be freed from the curse and be blessed evermore in him. That is the hope of the gospel, that we would repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as John the Baptist said, and then points to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the hope, even here, of Malachi, because the forerunner who is coming is going to point us to him, the one who always did religion right in all the, for all the ways that we did it wrong and then died in our place that we might not have to know the curse that God lays before the people of Israel here. And that is the book of Malachi. What final questions do you have or uh, any edifying things that you took particularly from the book of Malachi that might be helpful to share? I require at least two as we conclude, they can be questions or they can be edifying comments. That bad, huh? All right. Well, yes, Chadwick. Thank you. This is Chadwick. Uh, how would you say the Hebrews understand the absence of prophets since Malachi? So for 400 years, we then had John the Baptist, and we were talking about how he was in understood as being a way-led prophet, but it's been now 2,400 years and change. How did they understand that? That's an excellent question that I haven't asked a rabbi. I think at the same line, we want to ask them, do you, so there's been no prophets. You have no temple to sacrifice in. When did all that stop? Let's go back and let's look. Something happened. Something happened around 70 A.D. 
um, and we would want to point them to, is it possible that the reason that things have been as they are for so long is because you rejected your Messiah, of whom all the prophets foretold? What if Jesus is the Messiah? What is it that's, that scares you about even maybe looking into that? Have you considered it? And obviously, there's much to lose for someone in regards to heritage and family and everything that comes with that. But I would want to point them back to, why do you think you don't have anything for thousands of years? God's never done this in the history of your nation to have this much. And they would, they would point to other ways that rabbis can, you know, pray and offer up, you know, sacrifices of thanksgiving and prayer and, you know, even, you know, particular, uh, particular groups of, of uh, rabbis will, you know, kill a bird on um, the day of the Passover as, a, as kind of a picture and this kind of stuff. And uh, so we would just say, in all due respect, I think the best way to explain your experience is by looking back into history and seeing what Jesus said was going to happen if you rejected him. And this is exactly it. And call them to repent. A great question. Um, Dennis. Um, from an edifying standpoint, I, I couldn't help, um, I'm honing in on the 400 years, and this last section is, at least in my Bible, called the final warning, but I almost see it as a, a final encouragement to remember Moses and remember that, because I, I think about the parallelism of when Jacob and the family were sent to Egypt for 400 years or, or plus with the promise that you're, you're going to be coming out and I will send you out. And so I, I sort of look at this as sort of like, hey, recall that occurring. You know, the Jews were enslaved, they were in bondage for 400 years, and then, and then Moses came on the scene. And I sort of see that same thing occurring here. It's like, hey, remember, you know, I fulfilled my promise when, mm -hmm. when Moses was brought on the scene and gave you, gave you the laws, gave you the prophets. So yeah. I, I just see it more kind of an encouragement way, more so maybe, or on equal ground as a, yeah. as a warning. I think that's, that's great. Yeah, I think, yeah, and for those who know the Lord, it is all the more a word of encouragement, right? For those who wouldn't know the Lord, it would be a great word of warning. And this is where it's amazing how God's word can work either way for whoever needs it. That's good. Any final questions or things you want to point out? All right. Oh, last one. And then you can keep the microphone over there because as soon as Zoom is off, we will uh, we'll sing, or maybe I'll just I'll be we'll passing the it. mic to Madeline for that. <laughs> I'm Shannon. Um, I just wanted to say a comment, just kind of just really thankful of seeing how, yeah, God never changes, His promises never change, that He's faithful, and just thinking about how we as humans, our word changes all the time, and just going and studying the Old Testament a little bit more in depth, and kind of you showing us that, yeah, His promise has been the same from the beginning, and we can, yeah, see the picture of His justice, um, his judgment coming, but also his love for his people, um, that he'll, yeah, he's coming back for us. He's never forgotten us, never leave us, never forsake us. So thanks for showing that through mm -hmm. Zephaniah and Malachi. Yeah. Well, praise God for that. That is, that is good news. Well, how about I pray for us? And then after I pray, we're going to stand and leave that microphone on and we will sing the doxology once more. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we yeah, our hearts would be tender toward you and that you might use things that we've heard from this weekend to 
instruct us and to shape us and to mold us and to refine us and to point us uh, toward you. Lord, would you guard us from, yeah, dead, apathetic, heartless religion? And Lord, when we see it cropping up in us, Lord, would we confess it quickly and bring it before you? Or would you give us uh, grace for those who are married, that they would honor the covenant that they have um, stepped into, uh, that you have united? Lord, we pray for all of us in regards to our stewardship of resources that you've given. Would you help us, Lord, to be good stewards of your wealth that you've given to us? Help us to not be stingy, but to be um, generous. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bless us and help us, even as it's been mentioned several times, for our heart to be set on the hope of Christ's soon return. For you are a great God, and your name will be great among the nations. And we pray you would hasten the day when everyone would see that. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.